Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the Investors Chronicle IC interviews. I'm Alex Newman, a writer at the magazine, and today I'm speaking with James Dupper, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Majady, the asset manager he co-founded in 2002. James is also the manager of both Majady's UK Equity Fund and the Edinburgh Investment Trust and draws on more than three decades of experience as an analyst and fund manager. James, thanks very much for coming on to the show. Good to be here, Alex. I mean, the nature of a, a long career in finance means you're obviously going to see plenty of bouts of market drama along the way. How has the, the, the last 16 months compared with the biggest events in, in finance and markets that you've seen in your career? Well, it's definitely right up there, Alex. I mean, I think we can all remember that that really sort of I love reading the FT and I read it in hard copy. And there was that really gut-wrenching headline with a picture of the um, the wobbly bridge in the city talking about um, Sterling hammered as London goes into lockdown. And, you know, it really was a, a tough feeling. But it's in those moments where actually if you're working with colleagues that you've worked with for a long time and a really stress-tested team, that really counts and actually you know the evidence is that we took over the trust at that point i mean i I can't underestimate that you know the fact that volatility was probably at an intergenerational high at that point people were in 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 real problems but we transitioned the trust and we did it in a way that actually 15 months on the numbers we've achieved are actually pretty standard. The chairman called them strong. Um, it might be worth just saying what those numbers are because the all share obviously has just moved quite strongly up. The all shares up up about 33.8% over the 15 months. And our net asset value is up 43.5, so that's 9.7 more. And then the the actual share price, which share owners have, including myself, is up some fifty-two point three percent. So that's a you know a pretty nice eighteen point five percent more. Basically, as the discount uh, has moved in from a slightly uncomfortable eleven percent to a more respectable, but still work to do five percent. So we've had a good fifteen months, I'd say. It's it's early days, but I think what I really like to sort of convey is that you know and your initial question sort of alluded to this actually you know in a long a relatively long career um you do have times where you really think actually you know the uk equity market is standout and actually at the moment you know if you think about it the uk's really got its mojo back you know we we were in the doldrums from an investor perspective, particularly international investor perspective in 2016, 2020, you know, you know all the reasons why the Brexit uh, kerfuffle, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, you know, we are recovering from COVID really fast. I mean, if you think about the stats, the economic stats, if you were to kind of now cast things, I think we'd probably be within a statistical whisper a whisker, if you like, of um, pre-COVID-19 levels. Mm. So we're, we're back. And there's quite a lot of oomph in certain sectors in the economy. And that's kind of what we're finding. Yeah. And then obviously, led on that, you've got what's happening in private equity. Yeah. I, I mean, lots of themes we can uh, we can sort of 
uh, come on to as well. Um, I mean, it was obviously a very dramatic time to t- take charge of the Edinburgh Investment Trust, which I'm just to briefly sketch out for for, for those who won't follow. You were, you were appointed as, as the trust manager in, in, in March 2020 after, you know, a, a tricky few years for the, the previous manager. And then, yeah, as you said, you, you've, you've had this, this sort of triple whammy of markets have, have, have seen the value in UK equities. At the same time, your, your discount has, uh, has, has reversed. And then obviously, you've, you've picked some, um, uh, a pretty good balance of, of stocks. You mean, your, your fund is primarily exposed to you, UK listed equities. And of course, that's, you know, that's part of the mandate from your trust holders. But sketch out for a neutral or blank slate investor, perhaps with a universe of funds to allocate to in front of them, why the UK deserves a big position in their portfolio in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the first thing to say is um, the UK equity market uh, is jam-packed with companies with uh, long histories, uh, which have strong standards of corporate governance, are very ESG savvy, uh, which to say that you know they're aware of their stakeholder obligations, uh, and generally their ESG signatures are are improving. And what you've also got is you've got a genuinely international um, stock market. You've also critically got valuation that, circling back to what I was saying earlier, um, has been affected by the political issues post the 2016 uh, Brexit vote. And the net result is when you look at valuations, be it, you know, cyclically adjusted PEs or uh, free cash flows or the like, it does seem to me that actually it is relatively lowly valued. And then if you look at the shape of the market, and this is something which um, uh, has rightly been brought up, you know, the shape of the market, we do have you know, a number of sectors which, um, be it oils, materials, banks, um, which, you know, have been affected by some of the issues in in the last decade. But actually, when you think about the likely shape of growth as we go forward, um, actually, some of these sectors could surprise on the upside, frankly, and we can talk about that a bit later. So it seems to me the UK equity market is in quite an interesting space. And it's no surprise, really, to see private equity, which is a form of corporate buyer, really chomping into UK equities at this point in time. And obviously, the most recent one is is the Morrison um, Morris, Morrison bid, which we've seen, yeah. and indeed the trust owns. Yeah. Why not? Let's come on to private equity then, seeing as we've, we've touched on it. I mean, it, obviously, in recent months, we've not just Morrison's, we've seen a spate of private equity-led takeovers. I mean, to some, that's evidence that company boards are all too ready to lie down and accept cheap premium for, for stocks. And to others, it's that fund managers have just been a bit too mean in valuing UK stocks. I mean, markets are meant to be efficient. Often, they're not. I mean, where do you, where do you sit on this question as to... As to Who's, who's got the, the better sense of valuation? Yeah, I mean, I think our, our starting point is that, you know, we would prefer that listed companies remain listed unless there's a stupendously compelling offer is the first point to note. Um, I think 
the next thing to say really is that you know there has been a big move into alternative assets one of which is private equity and private equity has massive dry powder which it can then leverage up to very high levels and you'll be aware that the credit markets are very benign at the market at the moment and uh, the leverage which is accorded to private equity deals is at quite high levels and you know if if listeners would like to see a schematic of this i think one of the best i've seen recently is if you pop into um google and this is using bbc if you pop into google asda how to buy a 6.8 billion supermarket for 780 million you get a very good little um schematic of frankly how the structure to do that works mm. um and it's quite striking frankly and obviously the equity market has much lower levels of leverage than um than private equity deals and so is that know, a good thing well there is this tension really isn't there um i think probably it would be better if there were caps on leverage i mean it's interesting the european central bank has a cap on leverage that is six times six times ebitda and i think that probably would be a good thing because i think what we need to make sure is that deals work for all stakeholders yeah and it's very interesting i think that the 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 starting shot in the morrison's uh, bid with fortress actually has a couple of interesting points in it firstly that fortress positions itself as a cuddlier end of private equity so you know not in legally binding way but saying it's going to protect certain stakeholders so not just the irr alter if you like sure um, but also what's interesting is cornerstoning that offer is none other than a Canadian pension scheme and a US property firm. So another indicator of how overseas buyers see value in the UK. Sure. Um, so, you know, private equity is is in certain segments looking to close the valuation gap that that, that exists, frankly. Yeah. And I suppose that those buyers or potential buyers are operating on on different timeframes to the either the 12 month analyst cycle or the short-term price uh, share price movement cycle. I mean, that said, in addition to leverage, I mean, it, is there not just a risk that the, some of these private equity deals, you know, they're kind of a, a trick of accounting and, and the sort of min- tax minimization that they're never really going to be as good uh, a, a, a stakeholder as, as an equity market because they are, they're looking to reposition the business in a way that is ultimately, is ultimately just going to crystallize value at a, at a certain point rather than being a content, continual backer of a business? I think you're, you're, you're broadly right. I mean, most private equity firms have a five-year um, fund life cycle of that sort of order. Um, they do inject a lot of leverage into that. That does lead to, can lead to a slightly shorter time frame. And I think we've seen during COVID that actually extreme leverage causes problems for companies. Yeah. Wait, so where do you stand on the Morrison's bid? Yeah, I mean, I think, Alex, what we what we do, I mean, we're early days in, in this. And, I, you know, I said right at the beginning that 
our, our opening premise is we like companies to remain listed unless there's a sort of compelling offer, stupendously compelling offer. And frankly, I don't think this fortress level falls into that category at all. Okay. Just returning to, I suppose, just the state of market since you took over the the, the trust. So, I mean, you, I saw in your, your summary of the trust performance for the for the year to March 2021 that you, you said that, you know, there have been remarkably few blow-ups in the period, which is obviously a good thing. I mean, could it not be argued that, they've, they've, you know, there have been remarkably few blow-ups almost anywhere, really, with perhaps one or two exceptions in, in uh, among sort of blue-chip companies? And have markets, you know, been overly optimistic, particularly with regard to some very hard-hit sectors like travel and leisure, that they seem to have extended them a lot of good faith? Yeah. So I suppose, firstly, there's a theoretical point, and then let's go into something like the travel. So the theoretical point which you know many listeners will know is that you know a share price is effectively um, valuing a series of cash flows through time a sort of dcf and actually if you lose let's say one year or 18 months okay actually in that total valuation it doesn't swing it that much actually curiously mathematically so that's the first thing and then the next thing is that you know let's look at the sort of you know travel which has obviously had a complete nightmare and you know we own easyjet for example so if you think about what easyjet has faced obviously in terms of their flight schedule it's it's mullered um over the, over the period but actually, it's given the company a huge opportunity to restructure its cost base. So if you think about what EasyJet's done, it's grown quite fast. It's actually had a slightly uncomfortable uh, cost structure position in between the legacy carriers, so the sort of BAE, British Airways, the Lufthansa's of this world, and the Ryanair's and Wizz's of this world. And so actually what it gave the management the opportunity to do was to go to the unions and say, look, we have we have a choice here. We either have to sadly make, you know, quite a lot of people redundant, or we can talk about terms. And what happened in the end was an agreement was reached that broadly allowed uh, pilot and cabin crew uh, roster changes that made that put some seasonality into it basically because obviously if you think about an easy jet it has quite high um, uh, flight schedules in the summer and yeah. on some routes less in the winter and so what they were finding was it was quite difficult to access certain routes because of that imbalance and now they've got the seasonality built in so if you think about it from EasyJet's perspective yes you know, this has been a very tough period. They've had to raise capital, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, if you think about the long term, the long term is their market structure's been enhanced, their cost structure's been reduced. And so as they exit, and probably for, you know, for their environment, you know, you're going to see a pretty strong pick up as and when uh, people are allowed to fly because there's this savings lake, there's this appetite to travel, et cetera, et cetera. So you could actually see some quite strong operational gearing. And, you know, if you look at what's happening in the States with Delta and 
places like that, actually you see just that. So, you know, yes, it's been tough, but as long as you're in market share winners with managements that are really on top of things, actually, you know, it can be quite an interesting cocktail as we exit. Yeah. Maybe to add a, a final ball point, though, I suppose I sometimes struggle with the ball case for airlines, just given the huge range of uncontrollable costs, um, is I suppose that there's this incumbency bias, isn't there? And that, that if you are a large player in any sector, there is, there has been this enormous shakeout, but you can borrow, you know, you can borrow at cheaper rates. You have these economies of scale, which are, which are always good. Does that sort of play in a way to your, I suppose, a blue chip a portfolio focus that you are you are backing companies which they, they are too big to fail in, in in many of their sectors well i think i, I think what I'd, I'd nuance it by saying what what's been what is undoubtedly true is is over this period uh the share that number ones and number twos in any in- industry have have got have been enormous. I mean, like this morning, Electra Components, which operates in a very fragmented market, it, it essentially supplies all sorts of components and um, semis and other products for design engineers and sort of maintenance engineers. They're talking about growing more than twice the industry. And that's kind of what's happening. Number ones and twos are often growing at least one and a half x the industry and possibly up to two or three so we're seeing that gap between the winners and losers definitely increase but it's not necessarily you know just blue chips but you know within our our portfolio the Edinburgh Investment Trust you know and and it's been a big big focus over the last 15 months because actually what we found over the last 15 months is when companies do hit something of an air pocket you actually learn so much about company business models, frankly. Mm. Um, and and that's what we found. We've had some really interesting engagements with companies about their long-term plans. And actually what we're finding now as the results come through and we get uh, some recovery coming through, the demand and the pricing power accorded to some of these market leaders is, is really pretty um, pretty strong, actually. Yeah. On, on that point, as of your last fund disclosure table, I think I, I count around 50, around fifty socks that the, the trust owns. I mean, how easy yeah. how easy is it to properly keep tabs on? I mean, so many stock. Yeah. So I mean, taking a step back, and you know, it's interesting. The Edinburgh boards, when they took the decision to appoint Majedi as the owner of trust, I mean, a couple of the big things they were looking at the uh, the record uh, Majedi had achieved over the long term and also the team that we have because although i'm the lead manager on this trust you know the portfolio the 50 stocks which we put together which was a mix of uk listed and 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 global stocks is the result of the analysis and the hard work of you know the whole team and we've got 18 people covering both the uk us and global so you know that's what the net result is so at any point in time you know the 50 stocks frankly we can engage we can cover them in huge depth uh, and that's what we do on your portfolio and some of your i, I suppose your your focuses i was i was just looking through it and it seemed to me that you have Maybe this is just a feature of the, of the UK market that you, you quite like companies with strong asset backing. But then you've got some real capital light names in there as well, like 
electric components. You mentioned Dunelm, Hargreaves, Lansdowne. Do you, do you think in terms of valuation principles as a trust or, or is, it, is, it, is it more thematic? Yeah, I mean, I think valuation is valuation is 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 really um, is really important. Market structure is really important. Returns are really important. It, it's 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 kind of a mix and very difficult to sort of generalize and be didactic and say, you know, this is the cookie cutter approach because in each of those companies which you've you know you've talked about you know, there is a thesis and the thesis either strengthens or, 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 or perhaps changes. And to illustrate that, for example, Hargreaves is one we've actually sold. Um, you know, it's a very strong business with an incredible longevity, if you like, of relationship with the consumers, perhaps from JISAs through to pensions. But I mean, the way I sort of think about it and we think about it is that actually it makes approximately a 60% operating margin. And at the edge, what you're finding is just a little bit of price competition entering into that. You know, you know the issues, the AJ Bells, the, you know, in due course, perhaps the Robin Hoods of this world. And so perhaps when you look through time, that 60% operating margin mm-hmm. may get chipped and that actually will affect, if you like, the sort of the, the DCF I was talking about. So we just thought, actually, that's one we would exit and we put it into St. James's, for example. But, you know, Dunelm is one where actually I think the thesis, if you like, has strengthened. You're right. It is it, it's transition to more of a capital light company and it's been a very interesting transition because if you think about what Dunelm was, it was a store-based company. It's got whatever, 120 stores and actually has now become omnichannel. Mm. So I don't know whether any of the listeners have ordered from Dunelm, but it's a very slick process. It's so slick that actually when their stores were closed, they managed, and this is an incredible stat, I think, they managed in... Um, yeah, the first quarter of this year to achieve 87% of the 2020, of the 2019 uh, sales. So, you know, even with their stores closed online through click and collect, they managed 87%. So, you know, when you go to Omnichannel, it can become incredibly capital light. And obviously, Dunelm's got a very fragmented marketplace, which it's looking to grow into. So I think Dunelm's a really interesting story, actually. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely one we've been uh, following here as well. I mean, you, you, you talked about a couple of your, your recent, well, one of your recent sales and, and what you replaced it with. What, what else have you been a recent buyer of or you're, you're, or you're looking at buying or selling, I suppose? One of the more recent buys is, is as I say, St. James's Place. Here, what you have is you have a business that is a bit of a flow monster. It's growing... Um, you know, in the first quarter, it was growing gross gross flows at sort of twenty percent, and in, in their capital markets day, and you know, you can access these slides. Um, it set out targets to grow at sort of ten percent compound through to twenty twenty five, and critically, what it also said is it's looking to keep its um, cost growth to at or below five percent. So, if you like, there's that jaws, that difference between revenues and costs. Which is, I mean, that was the, the key. I forget the activist's name, but that was that was the key point 
that they were making last year, wasn't it? That they that they felt the cost inflation had. I mean, it been very good for employees of uh, at St James, but um, perhaps less so for shareholders. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the big feature is that you know you've had a, a you know new chairman in. Um, he has, um, in conjunction with the board, decided you know actually we've got to keep costs to a certain level. And also what they've done is made sure that in, 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 in their Asian operations, um, the losses will taper um, because that was also a bit of an issue um, looking, 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 at, looking at the business. And, you know, it's a business with, you know, pretty high, well, pretty high stickiness in terms of a client base. And also what's critically is they, they put across how using their academy um, they're going to get enough advisors to to do that because you know one of the big issues at the moment is obviously um, your supply chain or your labour inputs and the like in any industry. So ensuring that is correct works, and you know that is what St James's Place have have, have focused on. I mean, another one we've um, we've sold and with a certain reluctance because it's a it has many of the attributes of a company that I. I really like in terms of its long-term nature, uh, family controlled and the like, is uh, Associated British Foods, which, as you know, is something of a conglomerate. It's got all sorts of brands. It's, you know, anything from uh, Rivita to um, uh, Ovaltine. But obviously, Primark is is a big chunk of the value. And I I think just in reality, if you think about high Primark is positioned with the lack of online, the big long lease uh, high street stores um, with footfall not being what it was and probably unlikely to go back because high streets are changing. I think it's just going to be a little bit difficult for that to move forward in the way that it was. And also there are a number of which to give them their credit, they're, they're looking to address. But there are a number of medium-term, I think, ESG issues with clothing consumption. And you can see that in terms of the valuation accorded to, uh, you know, second-hand businesses at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. You, you've spoken about the ESG focus of, of the trust as well and how that's changed in, in the last few years. Um, I just wanted to finish on, uh, on, on a final point here James and that's the the I word inflation you touched on it a bit there in terms of um, inputs and their their, their their effects on on businesses and obviously we can talk all day about the potential effects of inflation on markets and valuations of price and, and prices but really for businesses which you are an owner of businesses one, one of the key questions for investors is how do these businesses manage pricing power and uh, you're obviously in a in a, a large range of sectors which in your estimation have the the strongest pricing power assuming that inflation is going to be sustained obviously i think you know as you say it's a it's it's a critical issue and i think it, it is quite difficult to generalize because you know if you think about commodity companies they essentially uh, are price takers but if the price of the commodity is going up they're in a pretty good place and you can see that in the oil companies if you look at, for example, Compass, which is a caterer, you know, a good chunk of their contracts are cost pass through. If you think about a company like Greg's, 
yes, it will see some cost inflation. But, you know, this morning when I got my bacon roll and, uh, and coffee and paid £2.35, it's quite interesting to think about that because as a consumer, there's quite a lot of consumer surplus. So if they were to put it up to £2.40, would I change my habits? Probably not. BAE Systems has got long-term you know, contracts in the main, or some of these telecom companies have got RPI-linked products. I suppose the, the areas one's just got to be a bit careful about is, is areas where you know, it's come through quite sharply and there could be a little period where it's difficult to deal with. And, you know, perhaps you might see that in some of the fast-moving goods companies, so the likes of Unilever. Mm. Or you might see that actually in some of the house builders where you're seeing quite strong increases. And, yes, you're seeing house price increases quite fast, but what you're also seeing is input price increases and then you've got regulation. So, you know, it's a little bit difficult to generalize. And what I'd say is this is where it comes back to actually having our the, the colleagues which I work with who are able to sort of be on top of these issues um, to ensure that we don't get, you know, blindsided by this. Because, you know, we are seeing a pickup of inflation and, you know, there's a very good speech by Andy Haldane, which got a lot of a lot of air airtime in um, in the press, and it's you know definitely worth a read. I think you know we yeah, are. He's, he's but, saying four percent is is his uh, his view by the end of the year, wasn't it? I think. Yes, yes, and you know we are seeing a, a pickup. So you know you've got to think very carefully about how your companies perform in that environment. But you know I'm relatively confident that we've got a good diversified array of companies, and so. You know, and circling back also to what you were saying about ESG, um, what we've also got in the trust is that if you look at the sort of the weighted average um, carbon intensity of the portfolio, it's you know it's it's appreciably less than the index. So again, I'm confident there as well. Yeah, plenty to chew over, and including that Greg's bacon roll, which I. I think I've heard you uh, mention before. It's obviously mm. uh, it's your go-to breakfast, uh, James. Um, thanks so much for, for for your uh, your time um, today. It's really good to talk to you. And uh, yeah, all the best for the uh, the next 15, 16 months for the trust. Thanks, Alex. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 